This is the 182nd QuackCast, a review of supplements, complementary, alternative medicine, and whatever else I want to talk about. This is called Lyme testing. It was from January 8th, 2016. I hate those oh hell moments. I was up way too late last night, but who can pass up the opportunity to see Patti Smith playing horses and more? For the 40th anniversary of the album. This album is only rated 44th by Rolling Stone. Behind the Eagles? No way. I would nudge it up a few more spaces. It is hard to believe I was 18 when that album came out. Horses is one of the few albums that has made the transition from vinyl to CD. It was a tremendous show, and at 69, Patty performs with the energy and passion of a 29-year-old. And man, can she spit on stage. I had the evening off, so it was food and drinks at Swine until well past midnight. For the first time, my wife and I closed the bar. Last people to leave. I am too old for this. But as I was blearily drinking my morning coffee on a dreary Portland morning, I opened the browser to SBM and there was a post by Jan Bellamy. Oh, hell. That means I have a post due tomorrow, and I had lost track of time over the holidays. I thought my next post was next Friday. Oh, hell. So unlike most of these podcasts, which I write over a week, this one was done in about four hours, and I'm sure it will show. How do you diagnose an infection? Well, not always so simple. As a physician, you start with a history, and for infectious diseases, an exposure history is paramount. People get what they are exposed to, so you want to know animals and travel and diet and water and sex. If you have ridden a horse to have sex in an Indian lake while drinking raw milk, not really an unusual history in my practice, people do do the darndest things, you have an exposure risk for a variety of infections. If you have not left the Willamette Valley, it is unlikely you will have a case of malaria, although you always have to consider that the infection came to the patient, i.e. suitcase malaria, and the other way around. In Oregon, it is unlikely that the cause of your symptoms is Lyme, as we really do not have much Borrelia in the state. Yet there are symptomatic people who have a positive blood test for Lyme. Having a positive blood test for a disease is a very powerful confirmation that you actually have the disease, right? Well, yes and no. Like much of medicine, it is not as straightforward as one would like. First, Borrelia. In the United States, Lyme is mostly due to Borrelia burgdorferi. After I initially wrote this, another Borrelia that causes Lyme was discovered by the Mayo Clinic. In Europe, there was Borrelia burgdorferi, Borrelia azephii, and Borrelia gurnii. And there are a variety of relapsing fever Borrelia. And there are other spirochetes like syphilis and leptospirosis in the family. Spirochetes are a large phylum of what I think of as particularly evil-appearing organisms. They just look pathogenic. And I can always imagine them corkscrewing into tissues to cause disease. The gold standard for infectious diseases for diagnosis is culture. If you can grow the organism, then you probably have the diagnosis. Usually. Again, it depends. The world is a remarkably filthy place, and sometimes the cultures are contaminated. And even more aggravating are negative cultures. And there are a variety of reasons that cultures can be negative. 
The main one is that we cannot grow the vast majority of microorganisms from people or the environment. Some organisms, such as Borrelia, are too difficult to grow outside of specialty labs. And when you can't grow an organism, you have to rely on less accurate methods of diagnosis. Some diseases, like syphilis and extrapulmonary tuberculosis, remain very difficult to rule in or rule out with confidence, despite plaguing humans for millennia. In the U.S., we rely on an indirect two-step testing to determine if Lyme is present. First is the screening ELISA, followed by a confirmatory Western blot. The test we use was validated in patients with culture-proven Lyme, so we know what the false positive and negative rates are, as well as the sensitivity and specificity. The ELISA is a screening test, and like most screening tests, it is designed to be overly sensitive. You don't want to miss a real case of Lyme, but it is at the cost of having a false test that is due to other processes. Remember all those other spirochetes mentioned above? They and other infections can lead to a positive Lyme ELISA. The ELISA is sensitive, but it's not that specific. It will pick up Lyme, but a lot of other diseases as well. To get a more specific answer, you do a Western blot. And the Western blot has two flavors, the IgM for acute disease and the IgG for more prolonged disease. The IgM is the first antibody to respond to infection, lasting a couple of months and eventually supplanted by the IgG, which is lifelong. The current testing may occasionally give a false positive that is actually due to infection from, for example, Borrelia miyamotoi in the United States. But for spirochetes, there is not a lot of data, but most will have a negative Western blot. So a positive standard two-step Lyme test says you have, or had, if you have been treated, Lyme disease. But that is the problem with serology. It does not say if you have active disease or reinfection. And that is where risk and symptoms come to play. But what about European Lyme? Is the Borrelia in Europe the same as the United States? I doubt it. Organisms separated by geography will diverge. It has happened with histoplasmosis and coccidioidemycosis and plasmodium ovale, a form of malaria, to name but a few. They may look the same and act the same, you know, like Patty Duke, but genetically they are different. The same applies to U.S. and European Borrelia. They are different enough that it affects testing. The U.S. two-step test was developed against a U.S. strain of Borrelia and it is probably not optimal for the diagnosis of European Lyme. A better test, if you can't fly back to Germany to be tested there, is perhaps the C6 ELISA, and that may also be a sufficient screening test that does not need a confirmatory Western blot. It is an interesting question whether the genetic diversity of Borrelia, as you get further away from the Northeast epicenter, could alter the sensitivity of Lyme testing if the tests were developed in the U.S. There are also issues in the future of genetic drift due to climate change and the movement of animal reservoirs, the natural evolution of the organism, and the discovery of other Borrelia that could affect the epidemiology and testing for Lyme. As of now, they do not appear to be issues and standard testing remains both sensitive and specific for diagnosing Lyme. All this testing is under the assumption that there is a reasonable pretest probability that the patient could have Lyme. If the pretest probability is low, as in Oregon, any positive test in a patient with no risk and atypical symptoms is likely a false positive.
Quote, predictive value is determined both by test characteristics, sensitivity and specificity, and importantly by the population in which it is used. The practice of testing patients with a low likelihood of Lyme can generate more false positive results than true positive results, resulting in misdiagnosis and thereby harming ill people. However, when the pretest probability is low, most positive test results are false positives. This is a tough concept for doctors and patients, including me, to wrap their heads around with any type of testing. The test is positive. It has to be due to disease. But what about other Lyme tests? With little oversight, laboratories can develop their own tests and offer them to patients. The questions are whether they are accurate and what they were validated against so you can know the true sensitivity and specificity. Many of the alternative tests for Lyme have no documented validation, so their sensitivity and specificity is not known. And some labs have their own unvalidated interpretation of the standard two-step. Any indirect test for infection has to be validated against a population with culture-proven disease. Otherwise, it's of no use. The specialty labs for Lyme testing have been evaluated and found to be wanting, with false positive rates approaching 50% depending on the lab. And with Lyme specialty laboratories, quote, one could claim that their methods provided greater sensitivity. However, this increase in sensitivity came at can only be considered an unacceptable price, a steep decrease in specificity of the normal healthy controls met their IgM criteria. 11 of 40 met their IgG criteria, and 23 of 40 healthy controls met one or the other. Widespread testing for Lyme in populations at little risk for the disease offers little benefit. Quote, with 20 to 25 percent of the population having nonspecific complaints, the positive predictive value of a positive serology using the CDC criteria, IgG only for complaints of greater than four weeks, is extremely poor. It is certainly not diagnostic. For serologies with specificities like those reported by the Lyme Specialty Laboratory B, a positive serology in this patient population has such a low positive predictive value that it has virtually no value. Simply stated, basing a diagnosis of Lyme disease or any other tick-borne infectious diseases on the presence of more than one of these common vague symptoms is unjustified. These unvalidated tests are one of the reasons why the FDA is investigating the process by which these labs offer their tests. And interestingly, those with false positive Lyme serologies do get labeled as chronic Lyme disease, but their clinical presentation is identical to patients diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, now called systemic exertion intolerance disease, abbreviated SEID. Whatever the etiology of SEID is, it is a debilitating illness, and sloppy diagnostic testing will result in these patients being funneled into the black hole of chronic Lyme treatment, instead of, hopefully, the more fruitful future of SEID research. There are other diagnostic tests not to be used for Lyme, but you can pay for them. Capture assays for antigens in the urine culture immunofluorescence staining, lymphocyte transformation tests, quantitative CD57 lymphocyte assays, reverse Western blots, in-house criteria for interpretation of immunoblots, 
measurements of antibodies in joint fluid, IgM or IgD tests without a previous ELISA. And unfortunately, the PCR is of little use in the diagnosis of Lyme. Of course, it's really all just a conspiracy. There does need to be better Lyme testing. As a practicing infectious disease doctors, tests like these are an indirect means of diagnosing disease. And while very good, they are still far from ideal. I am sure there will be no CDC-supported test that will satisfy those who believe in chronic Lyme disease. In that universe, there are no false positive tests, only false negatives. And the CDC and the FDA are in a conspiracy to cover up the truth about Lyme. For Lyme and many other infections, diagnosing a disease is not based on a test in isolation. It depends on the risks, the symptoms, the operative characteristics of the test. No specific risk, no characteristic symptoms, and a positive result from an unvalidated test is not the way to diagnose Lyme. And that ends the 182nd QuackCast. You can go to edgydoc.com to find links to my growing multimedia empire, including my books and my other podcasts and my apps and my lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. The references for this QuackCast are on the science-based medicine article of the same name, Lyme Testing, from January 8th, 2016. Thanks for listening. Bye.